what energizes us, what makes each of us happy might be different than others. And the less we compare, the less we marinate in social media, the less we marinate in some of the popular press, actually the more likely we are to be happy. Welcome to The Chill Factory, where we make work, school, relationships, and life less stressful. I'm Jordan Friedman. Are you happy? If you answered no, is it possible that you might actually be happy or be happy enough, even though you don't think you are? I ask because happiness is really important to health, and it's a powerful foe of stress. But happiness can also be stressful because there's a lot of pressure to be consistently and reliably happy around others and around ourselves, thanks in great part to an ecosystem of media and images and influencers, many of whom profit from us paying attention to them and their abundant advice on how to be happy. Because happiness and the pursuit of it are such big and worthy topics, I've wanted to do a happiness reality check for a long time and to sort through our feelings about happiness to make the pursuit of it easier, less burdensome, and more enjoyable. Well, I've finally found the perfect expert to talk about happiness, including happiness at work and happiness in our changing work environments. Our conversation does include things you can do to get happier, and I think it will be a go-to friend you can return to when happiness, or the lack thereof, is on your mind. Dr. Tracy Brower is a sociologist studying work-life fulfillment and happiness. She's the author of The Secrets to Happiness at Work and Bring Work to Life. Tracy is the Vice President of Workplace Insights for Steelcase. Her work has been translated into 17 languages, and she's a regular contributor to Forbes.com and Fast Company. And stay tuned, because at the end of the conversation, I'll let you know the 10 happiest states in the U.S. and what makes their residents so happy. I started by asking Tracy, what is happiness? I think that might be the $6 million question. And one of the things I think is important is that we realize that happiness isn't all bonbons and butterflies all the time. Like happiness ebbs and flows. We experience happiness at work, usually in terms of a sense of immersion and dedication. It's kind of that energy that you get from work and that energy that you want to give to work. And often we experience happiness as well through a sense of mattering. Like we just feel like there's meaning in our work and we feel like we are valuable in a bigger picture process. So usually happiness has to do with those kinds of experiences. I love what you said at the beginning of your answer about the ebbs and flows of happiness because it reminded me of a definition of happiness that I saw many years ago. It said, happiness is general contentedness with occasional joy. And I thought, wow, yeah, it doesn't have to be smiling all the time and always in a good mood and skipping down the lane. Yeah, I'm happy and this is real happiness. But then along comes social media and influencers and celebrities constantly telling us how to be happier and showing endless photos of 
friends with their arms around each other, smiling, laughing in beautiful places. And it's pretty easy to think, well, wait a second, maybe I'm not so happy as I thought I was. Maybe I need to try to do something to make myself happier. It's a lot of pressure. So I'm really happy to have you, someone who has studied happiness for a long time, to talk with and to give us a reality check on happiness. What do you think of all that? Yeah, you are making such an important point. And it's so true that happiness ebbs and flows. I think that one of the things we can do is kind of take the pressure off of ourselves. Like we don't have to be, you know, like you said, skipping down the road in a, in a state of euphoria constantly in order to count ourselves as happy. We might have up days and down days, but we can still have an overall sense of joy and contentment. And so that's important to realize. And I think the other thing that has happened in our Western culture, in our, um, in our North American culture, if you will, is a sense of happiness inflation. We can think about this as hedonistic adaptation in the scientific sense of the word, where we feel like we reach a level of happiness and then we have to get more and more and more and more happy. I think it's also really interesting the point you make about comparison. There's that beautiful quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And we have to remind ourselves that what energizes us, what makes each of us happy might be different than others. And the less we compare, the less we marinate in social media, the less we marinate in um, some of the popular press, actually the more likely we are to be happy. And there's something to be said for not being happy all the time because it's the dissatisfaction, it's the unhappiness that helps us figure out solutions and helps us figure out where we want to go. So without that, we probably wouldn't progress as much as we'd like to. Yes, exactly. And I think sometimes we equate happiness with kind of easy street as well, right? But when we're struggling, when we're putting forward effort, when we're solving problems, that's actually correlated with happiness. When we're stretching, when we're challenged, that is correlated with happiness. And of course, we need, you know, moments when we're, you know, sitting on the back porch reading a great book or (laughs) eating popcorn or whatever we do, right? But also this opportunity for stress and challenge is positive. And I love the concept of eustress, which is um, kind of the Goldilocks rule of challenge. Like when you don't have any challenge or when you have too much challenge, you can actually reduce satisfaction and happiness. But when we have a level of challenge that's kind of just right, that keeps us on our toes, that keeps us motivated, that keeps us engaged, that's absolutely linked with happiness. So it's that it's that looking for challenge in all the right places and appreciating all the things that we're figuring out about our own capabilities and about the people who support us that can be links to happiness. Socializing is a big part of your work, the need for humans to be with others. So I'm wondering in our new world where people are still either completely on their own or many are largely on their own, what would you recommend to increase that socialization? This is the thing that keeps me awake at night, honestly. 
people are reporting very low levels of friendship. They're reporting that they don't have enough connection. They're reporting that they feel distant and they have greater levels of um, mental uh, um, challenge and emotional challenge, anxiety, depression, based on that distance from each other. So what we can do is be very, very intentional about spending time with family and friends. Um, go out of our way to invest time in spending with others. We can be very intentional about when we choose to be face-to-face -face with colleagues to work on a project and roll up sleeves together. We can be very intentional when we're working um, remotely to be on camera, to be available, to be accessible if somebody reaches out to us. The other thing we can do is be intentional about even very superficial interactions. Like, um, of course, our deeper, more meaningful relationships add to our levels of happiness and well-being. But it's kind of lesser known that superficial interaction also contributes. So, you know, maybe instead of ordering on the app, you actually talk to the barista. Or, you know, maybe instead of getting your delivery from, you know, the supermarket or Target or whatever, you go to the store and, you know, interact with the person at the checkout lane. Sometimes those feel like inconveniences, but actually that friction, that everyday kind of relating with people in our communities is a really big part of happiness. And so the more that we can kind of immerse ourselves in all kinds of interactions, the better it is for us. Even as introverts, whether we're introverted or extroverted, we need those levels of connection with each other. Oh, it's really nice not to be sitting in the corner of my kitchen all day anymore. <laughs> You're so right. You are so right. It's amazing how we are so much more similar than we believe. And when we're in person, we get all the nuance of, you know, the nonverbal connection or the um, tuning into somebody to know if they need support, the opportunity to listen and demonstrate that we're paying attention and that we're attentive, even in a world of so many distractions. So you never know what you might learn. You never know how you might connect. You you never know how you might be able to be exactly the support that somebody needed at that moment in their day. Tracy, we see more and more companies and organizations now requiring their teams and talent to go back into the office or at least to go back part time. And this is after a couple of years of people getting pretty used to working at home or remotely and having more control over their schedules and their lives. So I'm guessing that there are a lot of people who are pretty resistant, pretty unhappy about going back into the office. Any advice for someone who is in this situation? I think it's actually a really good thing when an organization takes a firm stand. We are a you know default together company, or we're a better together company, or we value collaboration, we value face-to-face. And therefore, we want to be in the office X number of days per week. So I actually think it's really helpful because it makes an organization more legible. People know where they stand. They know their value. They know the culture is a priority for the organization. And they can then make good decisions um, moving forward about whether they want to be part of that. So I think taking a firm stand is a really good thing. It's also really helpful when organizations pay attention to the place and make sure that it's not just coming 
coming back to a sea of gray cubes, that the space is activated, that there are places that are comfortable, there are places where it's been upgraded with technology, the space is stimulating and energizing. Um, There are activities that bring people back because we want to come back to really wonderful environments and we want to come back to the people who are also showing up at those wonderful environments. And and I think people can um, remind themselves of all the good reasons to be there, right? Like you want to be part of the team. You want to interact and get to know colleagues. You want to have visibility in the organization. You want to build your social capital and your network. You want to contribute to projects that are challenging and sometimes that's easier to do um, face-to-face. I have a um, firm hypothesis that the people who are most resistant to coming back are the people who haven't been back yet. And I think once you step over that threshold and step into the office, you say to yourself, oh, I remember this. I can do this. I like these people. And and if you're having a, a negative experience, you can make other choices as well, similar to what you talked about before. Okay, Tracy, you have had some of the coolest job titles that I've ever seen, including Global Vice President of Workplace Vitality. What does a Global VP of Workplace Vitality do? Isn't that a great title? I felt the same way when I was in that role. That title was really, really fun. You know, um, workplace vitality is, I think, what we all can be doing, right? Workplace vitality is about the energy, the health, the well-being, the um, positive outlook of how our work affects us and how we affect our work. I think another of the myths of happiness is that we have to wait for all the conditions to be right in order to be happy. But in reality, we're absolutely empowered to create the conditions for happiness with purpose, with connection, with learning that we've talked about. And so being a vice president of workplace vitality is about creating those conditions for vitality in the workplace, but then also in the broader scheme of the work experience. And so I feel like that's kind of what I've been doing for all of the jobs that I've had, regardless of their titles. And I feel like it's also something that we all can be doing, right? Paying attention to that level of optimism. Again, not you know every single day bonbons and butterflies, but as much as possible, just really being intentional about the choices you make to um, have the work experience and the life experience be more rewarding and fulfilling. You know, I like how you talked about that because it speaks to the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of happier, not needing to be something that we individually have to tackle on our own, which of course makes it feel really difficult, if not impossible. So this idea of our family members, our friends, our workplaces, our communities where possible being a part of this pursuit of happier, that's got to make it more effective and faster, right? Absolutely. In fact, there's been some really beautiful sociological research where people were asked to spend some money either on themselves or others. And when they spent money on others, they were significantly happier. In addition, when we focus on giving back to the community, we tend to be happier than when we're really just focused on, you know, myopically, how will we be happy individually or independently? There's another aspect to what you were saying, which I think is interesting, and that is when 
you are receiving support from someone that is helpful and and that generates a level of happiness, right? You feel like others care about you and that's a really good thing for well-being. And the other thing that's true in some brand new research is when the people who are supporting you are connected with each other, that's even better for your well-being. So there's something about this webbing, this netting, this connectedness of our communities. Happiness is sort of a a team sport, right? Like, Like we are empowered to create happiness for ourselves. And when we do for others, that is part of the happiness equation as well. I think it's important to say that there are many people with mental health challenges, anxiety disorders, depression, etc., that can't be meaningfully impacted with some of the suggestions we've discussed here today. But there are many medications and therapies and other treatments which can be very helpful and even used in combination with some of the strategies you've discussed. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good point. And I think one of the problems with happiness is that we tend to be judgy about being happy. We tend to judge ourselves, right? If I'm not happy, I must not be doing something right. Or if somebody else isn't happy, they need to just, you know, kind of pull up their bootstraps and, you know, get on it and, and do better. And I think we need to be really careful not to blame ourselves or others if we're not happy all the time. And and to, rem- again, remove that pressure, right? Like, like um, we tend to believe if we make the right choice, we'll always be happy, right? If we choose the right place to live or the right job or the right partner or whatever. But any choice we make is a set of conditions, a set of circumstances. And there'll be things that will be wonderful about those and things that aren't our favorite thing, right? So... Um, So I think we can also take the pressure off and as much as possible align what we love to do and what we have to do, but also know that we will never have perfect alignment. Um, That is sort of that utopia that we'll never accomplish, but through um, reflecting on where we are, through working toward creating the conditions for happiness, like connection and learning, those are the ways that we can enhance our mental health and well-being as well. Again, not toward a constant state, but in a way that we're forgiving of ourselves and less judgmental of ourselves. And few things in life are stagnant. If something's not working for us, we can try new activities. We can meet new people. We can try new ways of thinking to try to change our situations, our mood, our happiness in a positive way few things are prison sentences except prison sentences, and most of them come to an end at some point. Yes, absolutely. There's some great research that I love that talks about action. Like if we're unhappy with a situation, just by taking action, we can contribute to our happiness and well-being. So even if it's not exactly the right action, even if we learn and then we course correct, there's something really positive about moving forward, trying something, exploring, experimenting, realizing that something isn't exactly what we want it to be, and then really taking action to do something different. So that goes absolutely along with what you're saying, right? Like no prison sentence as long as you are willing to try something new or um, kind of put yourself forward. And these things don't have to be major life changes. If you're unhappy with your job, you don't necessarily have to find a new one. If you're not liking where you live, you don't have to go move to another city. Smaller things can make a big difference. 
Yes, absolutely. Small things can make a very big difference. We can figure out, oh my gosh, I love to read and so I'm going to start a new book over the weekend. Or, um, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to, I don't know, do yoga, so I'm going to sign up for a yoga class. Or maybe I don't have a lot of time, but I can start meditating, you know, five minutes in every morning. Or um, I don't have a lot of places to walk, but I'm just going to do a little um, block around my neighborhood because exercise is also significantly correlated with happiness. So even just small incremental changes can make a really big difference. And to your point, we don't necessarily have to totally turn our lives upside down. We can make those incremental changes over time and then really look for those um, small changes to have bigger impacts as they magnify. Tracy, are you really popular at dinner parties when you tell people that you study happiness and that you help individuals and companies to create happier workplaces? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I think that's hilarious. I don't know if I am. I think it might be the opposite. I think sometimes people say, really, happiness? This isn't the time to talk about that topic. Um, but it actually is, right? Like when we're upside down, when things are inside out, when we're really, really struggling, or when it seems like the challenges are so big around us, those are really good times to take stock, to regroup, to recenter. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm always the person at the party who's willing to talk about happiness. And I'm also just like everybody else trying to find my way, you know, try, trying to find my way out of the paper bag. So I'm always wanting to learn what makes other people happy? What are they doing? What are they figuring out? Because uh, I think we have so much to learn from each other. Tracy Brower, thanks for coming by the Chill Factory. I feel happier having had this conversation with you. So thanks for that. <laughs> and thank you for the happiness reality check. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tracy Brower is a sociologist studying work-life fulfillment and happiness, and there's much more about her, as well as links to some of her articles about happiness and to her new book in the show notes or at thechillfactory.net. I connected with Tracy Brower after reading an article she wrote in Forbes.com about the happiest states in the U.S., in other words, the states with the happiest residents. It was based on data put together by WalletHub that calculates this 2022 ranking from criteria that support happiness. Now, lots of factors determine one's happiness in a place, but I got excited by these criteria because they're a really nice guide for being happy or happier in many areas of life. So I thought I'd read some of them to you and then tell you the 10 happiest states that checked a lot of these boxes in this recent study. Career well-being, which in this case mostly means liking what you do and being motivated to reach your goals. Physical health or the effects of disease on personal happiness. Social well-being, namely having supportive relationships and love in your life. Adequate sleep, feeling active and productive. The number of households earning $75,000 or more annually. And some of the criteria that were especially important in this ranking included life expectancy, suicide rate, number of work hours, average daily leisure time, and ideal weather. So based on those and other criteria, here are the 10 happiest states in the U.S. or the states with the happiest residents. 
Number 10. Connecticut. Number 9. Nebraska. Number 8. Illinois. At number 7. California. The sixth happiest state is Idaho. At number 5, we have New Jersey. Number 4 is Utah. Number 3 is Minnesota. At number 2, Maryland. And 2022's happiest state is Hawaii. We'll put a link to this study and all 50 states and where they rank on the happiness scale at thechillfactory.net. My name is Jason, and as a long-time and enduring fearful flyer, I wanted to leave you a quick message uh, to let you know that I particularly enjoyed your recent discussion with airline pilot Dave Arazzo. Uh, it's not often you get to hear a pilot say much beyond the standard uh, flight-related announcements, so hearing some of the common causes of fear of flying get discussed directly uh, by an actual pilot was very interesting uh, and helpful to me, especially his comments on turbulence. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jason, for your feedback. And indeed, episode 38, Prepare for Takeoff, is full of facts to ease flying fears and anxieties. And if you have a comment about something you've heard here on The Chill Factory, just send a voice memo to info at thestresscoach.com. It's quitting time for this episode of The Chill Factory. I'm Jordan Friedman. Thanks so much for listening. We always have more resources at thechillfactory.net and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when new episodes are available. And as 11th century Persian mathematician, astronomer, and poet Omar Khayyam said, be happy for this moment. This moment is your life.